The main difference between millennials and me is millennials have a low tolerance for inefficiency. Thank God. So when you're like, please put that in triplicate, file it in two places, and then can you scan it and send me a picture? Millennials are like, you're holding an iPhone. No, I'm not doing any of that. Take your own phone out, take a picture of the document, file it in your own place. I wanted to go have impact in the world. That's Cy Wakeman, workplace drama researcher, leadership consultant, and New York Times bestselling author. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. In this episode, I caught up with Cy Wakeman. We took a deep dive into her research on ego and drama in the workplace, how to reduce emotional waste and resistance within your team, and what reality-based leadership is all about. What people do is they complain as if their standards are high and they lead as if their standards are low and you can't have both. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Cy Wakeman is a bit of a controversial figure in the world of human resources. And I've been, known as a contrarian, I would rather see myself more as a researcher. There's so much pop psychology that hit the vendor halls at HR conferences and people speaking without really evidence behind what they were claiming. And I started out life as a therapist. So when I got into leadership in HR and I started hearing some of the things people were recommending, it did not sync at all with what we knew from the research, what we knew about human behavior. And so rather than being a contrarian, although I've really myth-busted a ton of things we often say, I would propose that I'm more trying to bring back evidence and human behavior psychology into what we're telling leaders to do. This is like the swan song of anybody who's been a, a leader or in, or in management because there's things that you read. So you always see some study that says that they surveyed employees or team members and they said that these are the things that would lead to them being happy and you know more engaged. And that's oftentimes the surveys themselves are a bit misleading because, yeah, totally. they're, because they're interviewing people based on what they believe that they would do and how they believe that they would change. Or they're interviewing the victims on how to keep victims happy. And yeah, it's a huge flaw. One of the surveys I talk a lot about to show how this can be flawed is Gallup interviewed people leaving their position and asked them the main reasons they're leaving. And I think it was like 50% of them said they're leaving because of their leader. So leaders got this big slap on the hand. It didn't matter how you led. If people didn't like it, they left. So we did something a little bit novel. We said rather than ask people why they left that job, which you're just asking for an excuse, we looked at the same people over time, why they left multiple jobs. So when you track them over time, it's weird. They left all four jobs 
because of the leader. So then when does it not become about the leader anymore? So there's one thing to get a survey to build the headline you want to lead with on your next book. And there's another writing a book reporting out about really good research. And there's a lot of really good research lacking in HR and leadership. So some of the the terminology, I know you speak a lot on drama and emotional waste. How do you define both of those two? Drama basically is the funky name for what we call emotional waste. So emotional waste is any energy that's taken away from results or happiness, i.e. engagement at work. So when you think about it, it's disruptive behavior, which is stemming from usually unproductive thinking. And what would be some examples? Examples. Of, yes, of, of emotional waste. Tattling, scorekeeping, venting, blaming, resisting change, withholding buy-in, holding the organization hostage, um, giving terroristic demands in order to get my engagement. And these are very measurable behaviors. Well, early on, I, I believe it was in No Ego, you put a stat in there that left me shell-shocked. The amount of time that leaders in organizations spend dealing with emotional waste daily, weekly, monthly, I believe it was at least it was over two hours a day. Yeah, it's crazy. The actual figure is two hours and 26 minutes a day at work, the average person spends in drama. And what's sad about that is it's not only the lost productivity, it's not that people aren't working. They're working hard, but they're working hard with a grudge. They're working hard without full access to all of their intelligence. Like there's just a part of them that's distracted and and resentful and feeling taken advantage of. It's time that people spend feeling miserable at work that's unnecessary. It's just, it's self-imposed suffering. The challenge always I've found is that since we're talking about human beings here, at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings which are unpredictable. Is it possible to have 100% drama-free organization? I think if you ask my team, I can't say we're 100% drama-free. We're not robots. We get our egos hooked. But I would say that uh, drama just doesn't take the toll that it used to. Because the average organization, if you do the math, is 816 hours per person per year. And a lot of us aren't feeling like we have all the staff we need. And just think if you could upcycle 816 hours of drama a year per person and add people feeling like they liked each other rather than judged each other. In size view, drama in your workplace comes from one of the following three places. You either hired it, you allow it, or you are it. Of course, we all want to avoid bringing on emotionally expensive team members in the first place. But is there really a foolproof way to hack the hiring process? to identify high drama candidates before you spend time, money, and resources onboarding them into your organization. First of all, get really clear about what's important to your organization if you're committed to a drama-free or at least drama-evolving organization. And I say this because we believe they did the bait and switch, but a lot of times we're the ones doing the bait and switch. We don't believe people when we see you know, the first time we don't believe them, the first time they show us who they are. We also say we want one thing, but when we get in and we see a bright, shiny resume where this person served under judge such and such as a clerk or whatever it was, we lose our minds over that, right? So we have to get very clear and be willing to go through quite a few candidates to take our time. And a lot of people have weird beliefs that they haven't looked at. Like a lot of people say, you know, oh, Cy, it's so hard to find good talent. 
And when I hear that, I don't experience that as an employer, but then I see the flaw in their logic. They think they have to win the talent war in their city for people in that profession. And I'm like, no, you just have to be the best place for high accountables to work. It's not a very hard competition. So like if you and I are being chased by a tiger, I don't have to beat the tiger. I just have to beat you. So I just have to have a clean workplace where high accountables love working. So I have to really clean up my own view and move my own ego out of it and really hold that confidence. I have to be willing to suffer some discomfort to hire the person I want. The second you know, way is um, rather than waiting for the interview as your data point, I like to always be recruiting. So if someone is serving me dinner and they handle a tough situation well, I'm like taking note of that because I can teach you to be a receptionist or I can teach you to be my personal assistant, but I, it's harder to teach some of this other stuff. So I'm kind of always dating out there. I'm always looking, who are my fans? Who's who for me in hiring, who knows my stuff, who's active on social media so that I don't have to have an interview be my only data point. When people do come in, I ask a lot of behavior-based questions. Tell me about a time in the last two weeks. I make it current. So you don't have to go back to the one time in college you screwed up. Everybody's screwed up in the last two weeks. Tell me a time in the last two weeks you've screwed up and uh, that you didn't deliver what you promised. And I let them tell me that. And I listen. Do they start out with, my boss was a nightmare. I got this dumped on me. If they start out with a backstory, they're not yet my candidate. And then I'll say, you know, I listen for eyes. Sigh, I didn't properly scope this. And so I ended up in a situation and I needed to, I love the word I. And most of us in interviews you know, oh, they're, they're egotistical if they use the word I. No, if they're claiming credit, it's ego. But if they're owning it, it, it's important. And then I ask them, if I didn't hear the word I, what's your part in that? And then I test people. So I don't just have people come in. I have people for interviews. I have people come in in shadow and I test them as simple as I have my assistant call me out of the interview. And I have her sit down and I just say, I'm on question three. Why don't you continue? And I want to see how they handled that. Are they resilient? Do they disrespect people younger than me? Um, because my whole company is young. So there's a lot of things I do like that. And then just because you hired them, I don't know, depends on the state you're in. We have 90 days probation. And if you can't live up to your interview, we'll either extend it, but probably at my company, we'll just say, you know, we're going to be testing you and you're going to be testing us in 90 days. And that's tricky. A lot of people say, well, nobody's going to risk coming to you if they know they could lose their job in 90 days. Oh yeah, high accountables will because high accountables have nothing to fear. Plenty of companies try to be the best place to work for everyone. But Sai believes this approach to be a waste of energy and resources. Instead, Sai argues that we should aim to be the best place to work for high accountable people who align with our organizational values. People say, oh, family is really important. It is to us. But we don't tell you, you know, if you need to go to your kid's Little League game, we'll make sure it happens. Because that's not the case in our organization. Most of my people travel five days a week. And we work hard. We play hard. Now, will you get over the top crazy trips to Cabo? Not crazy and like. HR terms, but mm -hmm. fun trips. Yeah, because we, you know, have the ability to take advantage of some of our miles and stuff that other people don't have. But I don't promise people that, you know, you won't be here till midnight. It's flexible. 
like if you're here till midnight, you, you know, might not be in the next morning. You can work from home. But what's not flexible is that you can never miss a deadline. There are organizations out there who believe having a strong company culture means bringing in ping pong tables, water slides, and snack stations. Essentially, things designed to make work fun. I wanted to get Sai's take on this. You don't have the right people on your team if work's not fun. Because for me, work and pleasure aren't separate, you know, so I want people that really are passionate about it. But I would tell you, I'm working with a lot of those companies now and what they've realized and what we've shown in the research is that if you over rotate on engagement, buying people's love, engagement without accountability creates entitlement. And now they've kind of created a monster that they can't feed. And, you know, some of those companies had the luxury of doing that. I'm all about engaging folks, I would tell you that if you only have high accountables in your workplace, they're easy to reward and engage. I will give them anything because anything I spend on them comes back threefold. But if I'm trying to buy somebody's commitment or love or buy in, it's never going to happen and it's never going to be sustainable. So for me, let's have organic fun. Let's have, for me as a boss, I need to Watch my ego and not be, you know, overly money focused or try and control. I need to be willing to fund um, the experience of my team and do it well. If they have eating preferences, I mean, if you came into my company, you would say your people are incredibly spoiled. It would look like we're buying their love. We're not. They're incredibly dedicated. So if they would rather drink almond milk than something else, we will definitely have that delivered. It is the motive behind it. And it always comes back to accountability, it seems, because when you talk about buying love, if you could speak to the difference between the feedback you will receive when you're doing things like feedback surveys, engagement surveys from members of the team, where you'll have ones that are high accountable versus low accountable, we see a lot of leaders that want everybody to be happy. Yeah. And what I would tell you from my background as a therapist, this is one of the things when I first came into leadership, they're like, we're doing an engagement survey and 10% of your bonus is based on whether or not you keep people happy. And I said, but 90% is based on results that I produce. So I'm not going to go chasing after the 10% keep everybody happy. Now, will I treat people with respect? Will I try and pay attention to my own bias so that I'm not, you know, not leveraging somebody's diversity? Absolutely. But what I found out in the whole engagement piece and that focus on keeping people happy is it didn't play out in what we know from psychology because the same behavior cannot please a high accountable and a low accountable at the same time. Mm -hmm. You will always be ticking somebody off. Now, what do I mean by that? We are going to implement change so that we stay at the forefront of delivering progressive things for our clients. Well, someone who is in a state of low accountability is anxious when change is happening. Somebody who's in a state of high accountability is anxious when change is not happening. But yet we say change is hard, but it's only hard for the unready. So my high accountables are like, Sai, why aren't we doing this? The competition's doing X, Y, and Z, and I'll lead it. I want to, like, let's test it. Let's experiment with it. The low accountables are like, you know, it's only been on the market like eight years. Are we really sure that we're going to stick with this? And I just want to do the bare minimum. So when I started doing engagement surveys, it floored me that your vote on the engagement survey, one was anonymous, which I think kills accountability. If you have to beg all of this and wait for a survey to tell me you didn't have the tools to do your work, we got bigger problems than your engagement. But that every vote counted the same. 
every single vote, whether you were on performance plan or you were my top star, your vote on the engagement survey counted the same. And to me, that's corrupted data. And the second thing everybody talks about is that engagement drives results. And we know that that's simply not true. It's a shadow factor. Accountability drives engagement. People high in accountability choose engagement more often than people low in accountability in the same circumstances. And accountability drives results. Most teams are made up of a mix of high accountable and low accountable people. But where should your time as a leader go when you have both types of employees in your organization? Who should you focus on guiding and developing? To protect yourself from a, a legal environment and to be fair to your employees, you need to spend a bit of time with those that are low in accountability. And I would tell you that time needs to be spent not coaching, suggesting, cajoling, bargaining, inquiring. It needs to be spent just performance managing. Here's the basics I need from you. Here's the essential behaviors I need you to exhibit or move them out of your organization. But the average leader spends 80 hours extra on one person that is either resistant or or not performing. And that extra time, that's what you need to feed your mid and high accountables because that time spent with them really gets you an ROI. And so you will get whatever you feed. And if you want to feed low accountability with your time, do it, but that's what you will get. And then be very careful because a lot of times we build a dream team and then we put someone that is low accountable on that team and we say, you know what, if you can get this by Ed, it will be a good idea. And as if Ed like is the throttle by which you're going to run your company. And I believe in turning dream teams loose, get only high accountables onto a project, let them break the curve, feed them, you know, the resources they need, let them show you what possibilities there are. Then you can go back and say, look, my data as whether or not this is possible, isn't corrupted by your resistance. We proved it possible with a homogeneous dream team who are all willing. Now let's go back, and now that we know it's possible, let's find the ways to scale it and standardize it for everybody else. We end up working harder for someone's success than they are. And that's pure codependency to me. A lot of leaders call that servant leadership and other things. Servant leadership's good stuff if you're a healthy leader, but most of us aren't healthy leaders. Instead of talking directly to someone or setting a boundary, we talk about them and you know wish they read our minds. A strong leader is constantly investing in their personal and professional growth. And they, of course, also want to see that growth in their team. I wanted to know how leaders can assess when someone is a good candidate for positive change or when we should simply cut our losses. The key ingredient, people are like, well, this person changed. It depends on their willingness. Yeah. It's absolutely willingness. I believe from a skill set standpoint, people are pretty unlimited in potential. It's the willingness. And so... One, when you're working with somebody, before you figure out and think, oh my gosh, what can I do to get them more successful? Go to them. What's your level of willingness to really evolve in this situation? And if they're like, I'm not willing at all, I don't agree with the strategy. You know, help me understand. Are there some key objections I should know about? No, it's just not my preference. I don't like working that way. Well, that's where we're heading. So what's your plan to get on board? I don't have one then what's your plan eventually, you have to ask this, what's your plan to transition outside the organization? Because most leaders let people have a third option. They're gonna stay in vent and stay and complain and stay and resist and stay and slow you down. I owe my own company. This is my money, not in the market. It's in my company. I want the ROI. I'm not willing to 
you know, have that. So if leaders are going to coach, they need to not tell, but they need to ask questions. So we believe feedback is important, but feedback needs to be short and self-reflection long. And so coaching is helping people be curious about themselves. And I just say coaching is like, look at your results and notice you and how you moved through that situation. And what did you observe? And what would you like to be more skilled in or to do differently? And how do you want to change your approach? And one of the things that I think we want to as leaders sometimes is we want to give people what they need so they can have impact in the world. And we can't devalue the it's incredible value how people are impacted by the world and we're just there to help them make sense of it. So you got to give your people challenges. We know this about accountability. They got to be challenged. They have to experience accountability. They have to experience some natural consequences. You give them some feedback, but it's a lot of self-reflection and a lot of just making sense of it. Well, let's say, you know, and you see this with sports teams a lot. If you're, wanting your organization to be world-class and it isn't today and you know what accountability it takes to get there, but you've had people there for 10, 15, 20 years that have gotten used to a certain standard and you're about to raise that standard significantly for them. Can you really get that organization to where it needs to be without just cleaning house? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the ways that we keep ourselves from taking any action is the ego story that if I raise standards, I'll lose everyone. And that just doesn't play out in the actual facts. You have three groups in your organization. You have a group that you will lose and you should lose because the fact that you're thinking a warm body is better than nobody or that there's nobody else out there. And then you'll have two other groups. You'll have people who will be thrilled that the standards are higher and that people are going to be held to those standards because they were already meeting those. Unfortunately, you took work away from the people not doing their work and you gave it to the people who are overperforming. And then there's the middle group and they will come your way. So when people say, you know, Sai, I, I have these people here, they've been here 10 years, they're good people. They're doing bad math. It's not about just because somebody's been here 10 years is doesn't mean they have the skills to take you to the next level. It doesn't mean that they're even loyal to you. People are like, they're loyal to me. I'm like, you should have heard what I heard in the bathroom. They're not loyal to you. They are using you. Now, it doesn't have to be this big battle of wills. It's not your decision whether they stay and go, whether they grow or not. You got to get out of all that manipulation, which is ego, and ask them. Here's what the standard is that we're going towards in a year from now. Are you willing to join me on that path? I will support you. I have responsibility in this. I haven't, I've let you sit for a few years. So I will jointly help train you up. Are you willing to go there? And your willingness will become obvious with, to me with your growth and your development. And if you're not willing to go there, it's okay. I'm not going to hold you hostage, but most of us do really bad math. I hear it all the time. Sai, you don't understand. They're the only expert in the world on this particular topic. I'm like, well, let's see if that's true. Google it. Oh, that's right. You can buy that talent. You can rent it. You can part. There's a hundred ways to get that expertise. No one 
is an expert anymore in, you know, their own right. And then a lot of people are like, Cy, they're a rock star. I mean, they can't get along with anybody and I have to give them a private office and I have to have a handler. And I even at times have to, you know, sometimes take three approaches to talk to them. I have to see what mood they're in, but they're a rock star. And I'm like, stop calling them a rock star. It's not technical performance any longer. That's almost pass fail. The true value of an employee, they need to deliver what the organization requires. A lot of people have technical knowledge, but they won't deliver it for the organization. They hoard it. They have to deliver what the organization requires, but then they have to be growing and developing so they will assure us they'll be relevant into the future. And then a big number most people don't think about is what's their true cost? What's the cost of them in addition to their salary and benefits? What's their freakout factor? What's their you know, maintenance fee? What is their hassle factor, their drama quotient? And a lot of people, the ego forgets that stuff and accepts it as a cost of doing business and overvalues the other stuff. We really do poor math. I once had a neurosurgeon, the only one in a three-state area, but I didn't lie to myself about it. We had him come through a different exit. We limited his um, you know, interaction with staff. We didn't pretend that this person was a rock star. We pretended, or we, we didn't pretend. The reality was he was a decent surgeon, although even a surgeon needs good team you know, skills, and he was all we had for now. But I think it's important because that's where people emotionally blackmail you. In a lot of cases, people are like, well, um, if they left, they would take all my customers with them. Well, what is your part in getting your company to a point of risk where your customer's impact or your customer's interaction is only with one person who tends to withhold information from you. They're like, well, that's a big risk. I'm like, well, then put a plan in place to mitigate that risk. Because every time someone gives me a reason why they have to keep somebody who costs more than they're worth, it leads back to that leader's accountability level. It seems like you shouldn't have to justify. You should not. There's so much, yeah, but, you know, but they're this, or either they've been here a long time, they're part of my extended family. You know, they were with me when we first started the company, whatever that might be. And it puts a lot of just responsibility and accountability on all of us to continuously learn and grow and develop and, and ultimately contribute. Yeah. I hear that a lot in, you know, people who started their maybe practice or business and then they've grown. They see people like family. But if they had an uncle who acted the way that employee did, and I said, but you need to have a two-hour lunch with them every single day, even with their family, they would say, no way. I'm only going to see that person at Thanksgiving. And yet we're willing to work with people. We call them family. The Dalai Lama, I think, said it best. I love his stuff. But he said, if you're suffering, there's really only two ways forward, because all suffering is needless, right? If it's fixable, fix it. And if it's not, then own it, accept it, just know it's part of your reality. But most of us want the third option. We don't want to fix it. We don't want to own it. We want to vent about it. And that is the lowest level of accountability a leader in an organization can be in. We've got a rule in ours, and this is actually even extends to my wife and I in, in the sense that you're allowed to complain about something once or someone. I'll hear you out. Uh, the same thing goes with me. I can complain one time, but then either do something about it the second time or don't complain again. Yeah, I love it. It's so. exactly what I'm talking about. It's such a good rule. And now we may set time aside to better understand something that you know we need to sit with for a few weeks to figure out what's going on, but that's moving towards fixing it. 
And, you know, a lot of people want that third option again. I don't want to fix it. I'm not willing to give grace and tolerance and mercy and accept it. And so I just want to vent about it or complain about it. I'm not talking about people's quirkiness. I'm not talking about people's diversity. If you came through our office, like we have a lot of people's preferences catered to, but I would tell you that they're not terroristic demands. They're inquiries in, Hey, it would help me to have an extra monitor. And does that seem, you know, worthy to you? Um, yeah, it's just, we try and hold people hostage and not let people move freely through the world, right? To go work wherever they want to work. I want them to work with me because they want to work with me, but other people enable them and buy them off and, and then try and keep them. And I mean, that's a tough go of it. For many business owners, the fear of driving change in their organization and potentially losing longstanding team members can result in them simply sticking with the status quo, even if the status quo is endless drama and emotional waste. According to Sai, if you're one of those leaders, that's fine. But at the very least, you should admit it to yourself. It's fine with me if you settle. Just quit lying about it. So I used to go to my physician for my annual physicals, and I wasn't losing weight and, in fact, was gaining weight. And so he would talk to me about all the choices. I knew. I know nutrition. I know movement. I've run marathons. I know that stuff. And he would ask me, he's like, you know, do you want to be this weight? And I'm like, no, I'd like to cut some weight down so that I could be healthier. And he's like, well, you know what to do then. And when I would see him, I wasn't getting the results I wanted. And my approach was excuses. Oh, but you don't understand. I travel all the time. It's so hard. I get in at midnight. I'm up at like six. I, you know, my metabolism is shut down. I'm older. What I needed to do, if I'm going to stay the weight I'm going to stay, is just stop lying about it. People are like, Sai, did you, are you trying to lose weight? And I'm just honest about it. I'm like, well, let me think about what I had for breakfast. No, it doesn't appear like I'm trying to lose weight at all. So for me, it's like, you can keep those people. Just quit playing the victim. If you walk into someplace, go, you know, I have a firm. I have mediocre results. I spend a lot of my time on people that I don't enjoy being around. And uh, that's my strategic plan for next year as well. Stop lying about it because what people do is they complain as if their standards are high and they lead as if their standards are low and you can't have both. Oh, I love that. And I've got to ask you this because... Millennials. We've got to talk about millennials in the sense that for many law firms, as we came into this age where a lot of millennials entered the workforce, they look at them as almost like alien in the sense of like, yeah. I don't understand these people. They, they behave differently. They want different things. But what do you see as the differences in the millennial workforce? And then also, are there some better ways to perhaps manage millennials or different so. ways? I think so. You know, my take on millennials is kind of controversial because anytime you divide up by a group and then generalize and stereotype, you're brewing an excuse, right? So if all of a sudden, instead of me adapting my leadership style, me instead of me modernizing my leadership skills, you know, over 20 years, I use the same skills and they don't work with the modern population, the modern world. And then I blame the people that they don't work on. So my whole team is millennials. And, and the other thing is a lot of people are like, these are millennials. Well, most of them are 35 with two kids and a mortgage. Like how long are you going to go on 
blaming people, you know, entering their 40s. So for me, I just really say stay away from stereotyping. And if you want to classify people, classify them by accountability levels, because no matter what your age, your human condition is, you have this ego and you have issues with accountability. And so I really think that people, it was a popular excuse for folks. Now, do I need to modernize my leadership approach based on many things, based on what we've learned about unconscious bias, based on what we've learned as far as microaggressions and, you know, harassment. And yeah, I need to be building a more inclusive workplace. I need to be looking at my own unconscious biases. But that has nothing to do with the millennials. That has to do with us as humans hopefully evolving. The main difference between millennials and me of course, I'm kind of a cross-generation, is millennials have a low tolerance for inefficiency. Thank God. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're like, please put that in triplicate, file it in two places, and then can you scan it and send me a picture? Millennials are like, you're holding an iPhone. No, I'm not doing any of that. Like, take your own phone out, take a picture of the document, file it in your own place, I wanted to go have an impact in the world. And we're like, they just aren't willing to pay their dues. They aren't willing to enable you to stay dinosaur in your approach. And that's why if people have control issues, if they're command and control, they get nervous. Where are these people? Their butts aren't in the chair. How can they be working? My team can work from wherever they want. Don't miss deadlines. Be where you're needed when you're needed. And what I would tell you is that when I've done this, I lead less in my company. My strategic plans now, my people, it's like Shark Tank. They bring me their ideas. I sit back. I haven't thought of a single one. I shouldn't. I'm old. And they bring me their ideas. They pitch them. I, their bonus is a percentage of what ideas I accept. I just sit with like someone from my legal team, someone from my accounting team, some of my board members that are innovative. And we see the pitch. They came to me one day. They said, Three years ago, Sai, give everything you do away for free. We're going to film everything. We're going to podcast everything. And I'm like, that's your business plan. Like, we stopped charging for things. They're like, yeah, we're going to put it out on social media like Gary Vaynerchuk does. It's going to triple your business. Now, if that were left to me, I'd be like, that's ridiculous. They're like, no, Garth Brooks like gives all of his songs away and everybody wants to see him in concert. I'm like, this is a stunningly ridiculous proposal. And I got outvoted. And we did that. And it's tripled our business. So, Sad, thank you for this. And to close this out, it's because this is really a podcast around just game changers. And you're certainly a game changer in the leadership and drama research space. But what would you say does being a game changer mean to you? To be a game changer, you need to foster curiosity. You have got to stay super curious all the time. You've got to focus on your own evolution. It's not you that is going to think of what's next in the game changing. It is you that need to facilitate different conversations. So a lot of people think game changers are, I come up with an innovative idea. That's not true. I'm willing to stay curious and bring people together and say, let's keep thinking about this. Let's look at this differently. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. The leaders I find that aren't game changers, the more you're complaining that's the sign for the more evolving you have yet to do, you know? So I think it really is being a citizen of the world and being willing to game changers for people that will get out there in the mess. 
I'm going to try this. I'll screw it up. Let's just with compassion, observe it. Let's fail fast. Let's, let's do what we can do. I want to give a huge thank you to Cy Wakeman for her fascinating insights on leadership and cultivating a drama-free workplace. What particularly resonated for me was Cy's view on what it really means to be a best place to work, that you don't have to be the best place to work in all of America and for all of America, but rather the best place to work for high accountable people who align with your organizational values. So Cy, thank you. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more details from my conversation with Cy Wakeman, check out the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be sitting down with nationally acclaimed defense attorney and past president of the National Trialers, Mark O'Mara. We're going to ask him what life is like when you're at the center of a highly controversial case that's gaining national attention, how to navigate the media, and all of the details of his experience representing George Zimmerman. Somebody called me up and I said, yeah, I'm going to be counsel for George Zimmerman. And I'm not exaggerating because we have the pictures. Within a half an hour... There were 75 vehicles up and down my little street, about a dozen satellite trucks, and about 100 reporters. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mm-hmm.